0: Welcome to Episode 296 with my guest, Glenn Washington. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, the show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that hopefully doesn't suck. The website for this show is uh, mentalpod.com. Go check it out. Uh, there's a forum you can, you can uh, browse or join and post in. A lot of uh, support there. A uh, huge number of threads on a variety of issues. Um, you can fill out our um, surveys, our survey area. Not That's not in the forum. It's separate from that, but um, part of the website. Um, you can fill out an anonymous survey. Maybe we'll read yours on the show. Uh, there's ways you can support the show at the website. And um, I know I'm forgetting something. Uh while I'm thinking of it, I want to remind you guys about the uh, We Are In This Together Festival, which is coming up November 13th here in Los Angeles at the, uh, the Avalon in Hollywood. And uh, it's going to be a really cool event. Um, I'm going to be interviewing Royce White, who uh, some of you may know is a um, professional basketball player. He's played in the NBA, and um, he struggles with generalized anxiety uh, disorder. And um, he's now an advocate for uh, for mental health. Uh, we're also going to have uh, stand-up comedy by Beth Stelling, uh, storytelling from Sarah Benincasa. You know Sarah, she's an amazing writer, was a guest on this show. Um, we're going to have music by uh, Deacon Sue and Daniel Johnston. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that documentary that, that he's in, but... Um, it's uh, it's about him and his music and his mental struggles, but um, we're going to have even more than that. Uh, I'll keep you updated on it. But uh, tickets are on sale now at uh, InThisTogetherFestival.com dot com or ittfest dot uh, com. Oh, and another cool thing is that. Uh, we're going to be hosting a support group room uh upstairs at the Avalon and it's going to be available to all festival goers and to the public um hopefully a safe place where you know people can go find support and resources and um that's through throughout the donation of uh of the festival um so that'd be awesome if you guys can come this in in, in a nutshell the in this together festival it's kind of a um kind of a one-of-a-kind, kind nonprofit mental health awareness uh, event. And uh, it's it should be a lot of fun, and I'm really happy to be a, be a part of it. And uh, also, L.A. PodFest, if you're listening the day this came out, L.A. PodFest starts tonight. And um, if you go to LAPodFest.com... You can watch live streaming. There's, there's too many great podcasts to even list everybody who's going to be there. Um, and you can watch the archives for up to, I think, 30 days afterwards. And Sunday night of the festival, I'm going to be interviewing, uh, comedian and friend Murray Valeriano. That's, um, if you want to watch it stream live, it's nine o'clock, uh, West Coast time on Sunday night. Uh, Alright, let's uh, let's read a couple of surveys before we get to the the interview with Glenn. Um oh, and I wanted to mention too, the sound quality uh was not what I had necessarily hoped for in uh the interview with, with Glenn. We had some technical issues and so we had to settle for the sound that we got. That being said, I'm pretty happy with it. Um you know, Could have been a lot worse. Could have been a lot worse. All right, here's some surveys. Uh, This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself uh, your mother. Uh, And then in parentheses, ha, just getting your attention. And uh, her Struggle in a Sentence, uh, she writes, Growing up with a mother who simultaneously conveys that a girl's worth is entirely based on her ability to seduce, catch, and keep a man, and that men will hurt you, use you, and toss you. Boy, that had to be a mind fuck. Um Thank you for sharing that. Blanket Bug writes about her uh, compulsive shopping. It, to her, it feels like slipping into a warm bubble bath and allowing a feeling of warmth and happiness to envelop you as you shop and make the purchase that maybe you can't afford, and then yanking yourself out of the water and being cold, wet, and disappointed. Yeah, I think... Any of us who've ever experienced hypomania or mania certainly know that. The narcotic that uh, compulsive spending can be. Uh, Not sure girl writes about her depression. Life painted over by opaque white paint so that everything is vague, dull, and heavy. About her bulimia. Getting dirty in order to get clean again. Snapshot from her life. Waiting to be the only one in the apartment, then buying a box of dry frosted cookies at a cheap bakery on the corner, eating them while watching Intervention with no pleasure and with the pure intention from the beginning of purging them afterward. Um, thank you for sharing that. Hopper is My Hero, which apparently is a reference to Stranger Things, uh, that show on Netflix, which I'm hearing amazing things about, um, and about her alcoholism and drug addiction. Uh, she writes, uh, tonight will be the last night I use, just like last night. To which I would also add, because uh, the, the, the thought I used to have when I was struggling to quit uh, drinking and doing drugs was, tonight I will get enough and it will make it easier to quit tomorrow. That, that was the lie that I just kept telling myself. Um, and then this is from Mad Woman in the Attic and um she gives us a snapshot from her life and she writes i've been depressed and had been fantasizing about suicide i stood in the pharmacy aisle and tried to find a razor blade that would make a clean fatal cut to my wrist at the same time i took care to select a brand that had not been tested on animals i fear that i'm inadequate i fear that i'm inadequate <laughs>
1: So recently I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I
0: feel like my full-time job mental illness is convincing myself
1: I'm so alone.
0: Why hypervigilant I should try to do something. I
1: hate my kids seeing me like that. I just imagine killing people. I woke up with rats in my hair. They warp reality. Am I losing myself or am I becoming myself? I go back to bed. Hiding underneath the sofa while people were shooting outside the house.
2: I was able to get myself out of Scientology.
1: Put a gun to my mother's head and Thank you guys so much for coming out
0: tonight. I'm so excited. Don't worry. Good. Well, we're going to put an end to that. We're going to bum you out with uh, tales of uh, childhood trauma, and you'll uh, file out one at a time. And uh, you'll go stare at the ceiling and uh, wonder what went wrong. That's a successful show to me. Um, First, I want to thank uh, Jody Coley and uh, East
1: Bay Express for putting this together. She has,
0: she has just been uh, a gift from heaven in terms of putting these uh, these things together. She takes care of all the details. She knows that uh, anything that requires me getting out of bed is difficult and confusing, and uh, and she just. Uh, I, I can't I can't thank her uh, enough and, and outside of this she's a terrible person but <laughs> when it comes to putting events together uh, she's fantastic uh, so I want to get our uh, our guest up here I'm so excited to have him uh, he is the host and executive producer of WNYC's snap Judgment. please welcome Glenn Washington
1: <laughs> uh, I can Hello, Paul.
2: <laughs> Thank you for staying like this. How you doing? <laughs> Thanks for coming out, everybody. We appreciate it. Uh, let's take a picture for the uh, the listeners. We're in a,
0: uh, a theater called the New Parkway Theater in uh, downtown Oakland. It's a beautiful theater. And uh, it is. It's but it's, it's funky too. It's kind of uh, Oakland.
2: Is it
1: Oakland?
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's got all kinds of people, all kinds of stuff on the walls. It's got, you know, it's got that little kind of veneer that I mean, yeah. we, like, we like to call open.
0: Yeah, there, there's like graffiti on the walls. All the seating is like comfortable couches and uh, uh, recliners. I don't think there's a single recliner in here, but uh, it's just comfy. It's just comfy. You can't
2: have on folding chairs, Paul.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, so, where do we, where do we start going? You've been doing um, Snap Judgment for it's such a great show. It's such a great show. Thank you. For the people that don't know uh, who you are and how it came to be, uh, tell them how, how it came about.
2: I have a crazy um, sort of uh, entree into media. It wasn't my thing, actually. I mean, uh, you know, I, I like media, but. I consumed it, but wasn't something I did. And about eight years ago, I believe it was, I was listening to a podcast that had an uh, a, uh, advertisement for a contest that said, be the next um, public radio star. And it had Ira Glass and Terry Gross and Click and Clap. And they were like doing come on? you know, and i and, intern. And, um, and I found out that the due date was the next morning. <laughs> and so um, my little daughter, who was tiny at the time, she came downstairs with her bad little self, and I said, sit right there. And I told her a very inappropriate story. <laughs> and I recorded it on my computer, and I sent it off to this contest. And um, I didn't hear, you know, I forgot about it actually. You heard from the police. <laughs> I should have. No, it was, but I, about three months later, I got a call back and they said, Congratulations, you're one of 10 Violence Nationwide. And I thought, Really? Mark Nice Try. Click. I hung up on him because I thought it was my buddy Mark <laughs> playing a joke on me. And I'm no dummy. But <laughs> they called back and were like, uh, This isn't Mark. Uh, <laughs> do you want to do this? And I was like, all right. And from that point on, they kind of started kicking people off the virtual island, so to speak. And the, they gave state various challenges. And the one I remember was they said, okay, we're gonna give you a word, and you have two minutes to riff on it. Huh? Your word is grace. What? Go. And I had to talk about the word grace. And which, which ended up being for me, um, I'm sure you're gonna get into this a little bit later on, but um, the, a, a word so filled with religious connotations it was a big, flat, wet softball right down the middle and I hit it just as hard as I could. So I, um, they ended up picking three finalists, and I was one of them. And they said, okay, make a pilot, make a pilot. This contest, got to understand. We didn't know what we were going to win from this contest. I was not pride. There's no pride. And where were you physically when this? I contest? was in Oakland. Okay. And they were in New York. They were in various places around the country. Okay. Um, I was in Oakland. Actually, there was the people in this room right here today? I was with some um, with my, with my uh, housemates at the time, and my my wife, and they. Um, so, so, we, uh, so I made a pilot with Mark and we, we made this pilot. We didn't sleep for a week, we made it. And we poured our heart and our soul into this pilot. And I didn't, like I said, I was tired. And I just, we it in and I was like, you know what? We did the best we could. I don't know, I don't know jack about radio, but we did the best we could and I went to sleep. And slept asleep with the damn and I, I woke up <laughs> the, the next morning I got a call from the contest organizers uh, one of the guys said, uh, I'll never forget it. this is a quote, you have embarrassed me, <laughs> you've embarrassed the corporation for the broadcasting, <laughs> you've embarrassed NPR, and you've embarrassed yourself, <laughs> <Click>. what? <laughs>
1: yep, I was I didn't
2: know what, what I'd done. I really didn't. And, um, and, and and one of the most amazing acts of professional generosity, uh, there's a woman, she's now the head of uh, KQD Radio News. Her name is Holly Kerner. She was in Oakland too. All cool people, really. Bob, I'm afraid. Call him Oakland. But um, she gave me my first professional listen. And she said, you know what, you know what, young one. You are a very shitty radio producer. <laughs> Which was no big surprise to me. I um, that I was a nonprofit director. But um, you're a pretty good storyteller. And she went through and gave me a minute-by-minute minute sort of analysis of just basic radio stuff I need to fix. And was, I believe it was over Christmas, but Mark and I, we went through and we, we tried our best to repair this thing and we sent it back into the ether just for us. I didn't know what was gonna happen, but um, to make a very long story short, they invited me to pitch Stamp Judgment. And this is funny, this is funny. So um, anybody who knows anything knows that it's a bad idea to, we, I was just talking, I was just saying things. I didn't realize people we were taking take it seriously that we're gonna make a radio show, a TV show, a stage show, a magazine, a website, an app, and we're gonna launch it all on the same day. <laughs> 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 uh, nonsense, but that's what happened. And um, <laughs> we had to kind of, uh, you know, calibrate our, our energies a little bit, but that's what happened. and. and um, if they said, yeah, y'all should do that right away, and um, they did eventually fund our first season of Snap Judgment. That's kind of how it all happened. So, had you not won the contest, though? The contest was over. They were looking for ideas, I think, I and they just decided that this was one that might work. Yeah. Did you ever find out who that person was that said that? That? Oh, I know exactly who it was. <laughs> have they ever said anything to you since then? We're friends now. How are you? We're friends now, aren't we? Um, if you're listening to this podcast. Yeah. Don't do jack to me. Don't do... I didn't look.
0: And in hindsight, are you able to see where they're coming from? Or do you no. still think it was shit? I think
2: it was bullshit. I think yeah. it was absolutely outrageous. Yes. Probably he does too. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, so let's talk about your, uh, your childhood. You were raised in Michigan. I was. And... Um, what, what, was, what was your childhood like? Give me, give me some moments from your childhood that you think kind of inform who you are today and how you feel about yourself. Lord, Paul.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: I... I had a very, very strange childhood. I grew up in an organization that was called the Worldwide Church of God. It was a end of days, apocalyptic, white supremacist Jesus cult.
0: I I, I think that sounds like
2: a good guy. (laughs)
0: That's the makings of a good picnic.
2: Yeah. Now, I didn't, I didn't, I hadn't formulated that conception of it at the time, but, um, but it was a, what I remember more than anything, actually, was growing up feeling that I was chosen that I had special knowledge of the Bible that other people weren't privy to. Even the people in the organization? No, we were part of the chosen and we were all part of the this group. We were led by a charismatic figure by the name of Herbert W. Armstrong, um, old ass man, um, <laughs> who, he, Herbert um, is kind of a, is from this group of millennial um, utopian Person is about the same um, generation as Ray Kroc, McDonald's, um, maybe uh, uh, the Scientology, uh, L. Ron, Hubbard. L. Ron Hubbard. About the same. They all look the same, actually. Um, uh, Walt Disney. Mm-hmm. They all look about the same. Um, they um, and they, they had their various utopian dreams. Um, this one had. It was a it was an amalgam of of. Uh, Judaism and Seventh-day Adventism and Christianity and craziness (laughs) and That and so and so we I I was I grew up and I thought Was very very fundamentalist and so we took the Bible on its face at least on how Herbert W Armstrong saw its face and we thought that the world was we believed I believed I was a true believer that a trip to the mailbox was, might be a war between me and Satan. That, wow. Yeah, yeah wow. Yeah. And what, demons were
0: behind every cabinet and counter. Oh, I just and thought you meant that your mail carrier was a shitty person.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but th- that too, but you know... It, it was, um, the mail carrier might be possessed that day. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they came specifically for us. It was a war. We had to gird ourselves against the the powers that be. And, and I felt like I, I felt like everybody else was a muggle. And I was Harry Potter. <laughs> and honestly, one of the things, one of the earlier things about this is that, um, This was one of the um, organizations that didn't believe in doctors. And so, one of the... It's like they took the shittiest
0: part of every religion. (laughs) (laughs) You know, everybody's already taken the good parts. (laughs) Let's take what's left left over. over. Put it in a bag and shake it up. Before you go any further, I have one question to ask. Uh, You're African American.
2: Why would you... (laughs) Into Don't have white supremacists. Why why was I on a white supremacist Jesus call? Yeah. I have no goddamn idea. Well, obviously you're you a parents because you were a kid. I this is what I'm, I'm going not trying
0: to I'm not trying to answer that question. I was trying to remember where we were so we can come back, but Okay.
2: okay. Um I honestly I hmm. So this is what I think in retrospect. I think that it was actually Okay, I'm going to tell you the truth here. Here's what goes down. Herbie, Herbie Armstrong, was a genius at creating fear. He had one of the most popular, or at least one of the most widely available uh, Sunday morning TV shows at the time. You could pay to put those on the air at the time. And what he did was created this image of of the final beast power. An image from Revelation from the book of Revelation and I don't know how many of you in here are Bible fluent but if you read the book of Revelation that doesn't make any damn sense but if you read it (laughs) there there's these and you believe this is the book of this this Bible book is the book that that has the secret truths it's a very very scary book and is that the end of days? Of Lake of fire? Lake of fire? End of days? All of that. And what he did was this is one of the early computer animation deals. He got he uh, he took that the the image of the beast with the four heads and the three arms. I don't know what the hell it was. All kinds of different stuff, and made a computer animation of it that was scary as fucking hell. <laughs> and he said, this is the power that's coming to destroy this earth. And it didn't just scare white people. (laughs) It scared black folks too. And so they didn't understand that going into this organization, they didn't just come and say, hey, um, this is the KKK recruiting office. They didn't say that. They just said, look here, come on in here, pay your tithes up, get your offerings in, now we're gonna to get to the, some of the more intricate layers of our doctrine. <laughs> the intricate layers had to do with the missing tribes of Israel. Um, okay, here's how it worked. <laughs> okay, so the missing tribes of Israel were found. Herbert found them. They were the first 13 colonies of the United States of America. <laughs> And they were all uh, operated by white folks, and in the Bible, when it said that Noah was pure in his generations, it meant he was pure white. And Herbie had a line; he was a descendant of the pure white line from Adam to Noah to Jesus and on, and to these. Thirteen tribes, and so the very select few of the thirteen tribes, 144,000 from the Book of Revelation, would be brought to a place of safety during the revelation during the um, um, apocalypse in days. in days. And those people would going be drawn from this from these um, thirteen tribes. So it wasn't impossible for a black person to make it, but you had to stay really close to whitey. <laughs> I think that's. I think that's the doctrine. So it, it
0: was. Uh, here's the best you're gonna do. Come yeah. with us.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And so it was like a shit deal, but it's an even shittier look, deal out right, there. Right. Like right. I didn't make the rules. The Lord did. Yeah. So um, <laughs> if you want to make it, if you got, if you want a chance, yeah, we'll give you a little bit of a, of a life raft or something like that. But um, and I imagine he probably also wanted anybody's money. Oh yeah, he took everybody's money, you know. You didn't have to <laughs> you didn't have to believe to give him your money. But um so but as, as a as a youth I, I didn't understand all of that. I just understood that we had special keys that um and this is and this is actually very very interesting. And give me the age range that you believe this. From zero to eighteen. Wow. And when did you get out? When I was eighteen. Okay. Um, I was a true believer to my late teens. And even then, in a lot of ways, I had to be drug-kicking and screaming. I can get to that in a little bit. But um, when I was uh, when I was a kid... See, this is, what they do is they... <laughs> okay, so the Bible itself is an interesting book that I think in a lot of ways only kids can become in and the ways that uh, Muslims memorize the Quran we had to memorize the Bible and so what the what the organization didn't really realize was that they were making their own worst enemies because only the only kids can get that sort of encyclopedic photographic thing of the of the of the book and so then of course they start asking questions and um, this isn't making kind of damn sense Oh, we you not say that um, but but that's kind of what happened, was they were building, they, the, the seeds of the demise of the organization were built into getting kids to, to study the Bible the way that
0: they, they, they did. And how do you think that so, so the seeds because then the kids uh, could go over it in their mind and uh, question how it was being interpreted by
2: somebody else? So I, I'm gonna just say this right off. I think that our organization was fucking bad shit to say. <laughs> I don't think anybody disputes that. Right. <laughs> but I don't know if it's any more crazy than anything else. Um, so what they would do is, here's what you do. Do you think it's worse than Whole Foods? Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, Whole Foods has those people out there trying to get you to sign up for... Yeah. Look, look the CEO's busy saying to get rid of um, health care in America, let him take care of it. So no, I don't think, necessarily think it's worse than Whole Foods. <laughs> Um, but I think that I think that there's a thing that you do, and it's a, it's a terrible thing. I think that people want to believe things. They they're they're, they're um they're geared towards whatever whatever tradition you come from. You want to believe it to some extent. At least you want something to believe in. And what these cult masters do is like this. It's like, okay, you have a Christian background, all right? Hey, Mr. Christian. Let's open up your book, your Bible. In fact, let me turn it over to you right now to Jeremiah 10, verse 3. And it says here, Jeremiah 10, verse 3, that people who go into the woods, who take a tree from the woods, who put it in their house, that deck it with silver and gold. This is an early Christmas tree. These people who do this Christmas celebration in your book, the Lord says, these people have no part in me. What? And you read this, and you go, "Oh my God, this person knows something I don't." And so then you, uh, the 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 problem with, I think, oftentimes religion in general is that no one has read their own books. (laughs) Um, That's very (laughs) time-consuming. I have yet to find. I mean, like I should the people I love, people come knock on the door. You know, what you know, convert. People, my cohort of of, uh, of uh, having to memorize the Bible, people, we're we're not very susceptible anymore to people knocking on our door or trying to convince us to go to whatever um, church it may be. But um, the book itself says a lot of crazy things. Um, it talks about one of the things in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it tells you how to be a slave. It tells you how to um, subjugate women. The rules for beating a slave are very interesting. You can beat a slave in the Old Testament so that he is not able to rise for three days. But if he's able to, if, if you beat him any more than that, then that's bad, and you get punished. But if you beat him just enough so he can have to stand up for three days, that's cool. Now. Um, <laughs> People will say, "Okay, the 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 New Testament did away with the Old Testament." Okay, then why is it quoted 130 times? Because it's convenient for people's desire for power. Well, all I'm saying is that you can take any organization and look and and start putting a a magnifying glass to the belief system, and like you know, people say, "Okay, they make fun of the Mormons or they make fun of the whatever." But, look at the actual belief systems of any organization, any religion that you want to, and you know, um, and, and um, you might, you, you might um, be surprised at what your own religion teaches. Let's talk about
0: emotionally, what it was like being in that kid in this organization, in your family? What what were your parents like? The, the people that were around you every day that influenced you, what were they like emotionally? And what were you like uh, emotionally? will tell you a story.
2: This is the perfect podcast for it. <laughs> When I was five or six years old, um, my ear started hurting. And um, it felt like I had a... It was a flame. And what we would do in our organization because we didn't believe in doctors was call a minister. And so three ministers came to my house. And with my parents, they held me down as I screamed. And they took an anointing cloth, a special cloth, and they put a special type of blessed olive oil on it. And they laid it on my ear. And they prayed over me. And again, I was screaming at the top of my lungs until I felt an explosion in my ear. And the pain went away. And so did most of my hearing. And that ear for a time. But everyone rejoiced that. Jesus had come and healed this boy. And I too rejoiced. I was a young kid and I thought, okay, um, the pain's gone, the Lord healed me. And when anyone would ever ask about it, I was the first one to stand up and say, my healing, my lack of pain, was the result of this anointing that I got and um, and so I say that my parents were very very devout. My father was um, very very old school my mother was a true believer and um, and she we, we were raised as true believers. when we were when I was four years old we moved out of the country in the middle of nowhere in Michigan. We lived in a trailer home (laughs) on 88 acres of land. And we were out there in the middle of nowhere by ourselves. And the anchor that we had out there was this church and was that belief system. And I, I, I can't pretend for a moment that I was some, young rebel who knew deep in his soul that all this was crazy i did not i was there the whole time i was with them and so what what do you
0: primarily remember feeling emotionally as as a kid were you scared were you um uh, did you feel fulfilled by the spirit and at peace and joyful or what what did you what did you feel, were, were any alarm bells going off at all
2: in you? I felt alone. I felt odd. I went to a regular school. And one of the things about the church organization was that one of the many rules was that we worked to celebrate our own birthdays. And I remember thinking that that, was, that didn't seem fair to me. And I remember asking my father if, on my birthday, I said, Dad, it's my birthday, can we celebrate my birthday? And he laughed at me. And that night, I asked him again, Dad, can we celebrate my birthday? And he said, okay. And he gave me a glass of ice water. And he said, happy birthday. Wow. I know he thought it was funny. Um, I didn't. I cried myself to sleep. I thought, you know, I, I um, because it was. I mean, it wasn't like uh, we were on a special compound where everyone was doing the same thing. I had to go and, you know, be the weird kid at school, the weird kid with the with the pickle and uh, peanut butter sandwiches. the the kid that told all the other kids there was no such thing as Santa Claus. That didn't go over too well. Um, I was just a weirdo. The kid who wore dress socks and gym shoes together. Uh, Now understand this too. It was going to be tough no matter what. When you move a black family to the middle of rural Michigan in the 70s. Whatever, under any circumstances, there's gonna be some beat downs that occur. But we amped it up to 11. Um, and And I felt like, I felt, I think more than anything, I just felt weird. What do you mean when you say you amped it up to 11? I mean that it wasn't just that, and it couldn't just be black. I couldn't just be from Detroit. I had to have a crazy belief system. I had to try to preach the gospel to my third grade class. I had to try to tell them about their evil, evil ways and evil hearts. Um, everything had to be, you know, and, um, and, the, and was, was, what was crazy about that too is that I was actually a bright kid which especially didn't go well um, in that environment. <laughs> the, um, the, my teacher, um, I think it was a second grade or whatever, she said, it was me and this guy, this guy's name was Simon. And she said, all right, uh, we're testing the class to see where y'all's aptitude are. And she gave us these tests and we kept, went first grade, second grade, third grade, and finally went to um, the high school level. She said, I don't know what to do with you all. And so she let us, me and Simon, all we had to do all day was read the Encyclopedia Britannica (laughs) and sit in the back of the class and make paper airplanes. That's how I skipped. So, I mean, like, it was just weird on type of weird on type of weird. Right? (laughs) And um, so we would be making airplanes and playing little... Um, army games, and um, I'd be telling him about Jesus
1: <laughs>
2: and about the twelve tribes of Israel, and um, know, and you know, and this is you know, and then Roots came out, so um, I wanted to raise my black flag too, but it was just it was just a lot.
0: What do you remember? Um, what were some of the things that kids, kids would say to you? What were some of the things that you thought about yourself uh,
2: back then? What they say to me, they would say, "Here, nigga, 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 here, nigga, 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 come nigga." Um, when I first, my first day in this in this area, they would uh, tell this story often on Snap Judgment. I was getting on the bus. And it was a school bus, and I got on the bus and. Um, Someone, and, uh, everyone was screaming and hollering, and then boom, silence. Like, you know. And then um, the bus driver's like, Sit your back, sit you, sit behind now, sit your behind now. And I went to go sit down, and someone spit in the seat. And I keep walking, and it's like, Spit, sit it, sit it, sit it, nigga, sit right here. And uh, I was walking all the way back through the bus, and it was just, Saliva everywhere, and I get to the very, very back, and there was a a a girl, and she had her backpack in the seat. Sit you behind down, and I'm sitting there going, I can't turn around. The entire bus is screaming. I can't turn around. I can't turn around. I can't turn around. And she moved the backpack, and I sat down, and that was my first day of I believe seventh grade. Wow. Wow. But how do you say this? The um again, as a as a black kid moving to a rural area, you know the, the 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 thing of it is is you're gonna get some aspirants. The aspirants gonna start. You have to try and find a way to stop them. Um first day, second day, third day. One of the things that made me, I think, become was um, a little bit of a politician early on. So hey, how you doing? My name's Glenn. I won't be around the recess later on. Maybe you can catch, I'll catch you after the ass with me. Right? <laughs> we'll, we'll hang out. And so I go in and you're trying to build enough of a community so that it, it, it balances out so you, the beating stop. And it was, and, and, my, and I had a younger brother, I had a, your brother that was one year younger than me um, essentially kind of almost said he was exactly one year younger than me and uh twins in that situation and um we both used the same tactic to try to protect ourselves and protect each other and so did you ever form any alliances in that school absolutely yeah no i couldn't get beat up every day um, so what, no, this, is, this is interesting, so we moved every year, and so what I learned, by about third or fourth grade, get to a new school, get the first ass whooping over with, the first day, and then walk over to the most pretty girl in the class, say, how you doing? Now, all of a sudden i like, what? And she's like, I don't know, how, how are you doing? She's very, she's, you have, um, at the same time I'm gonna get a nast whooping, I still have a little bit of that new kid cachet.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: I got and I gotta make sure I use it. Now, the dudes wanna, like, the, the, it still, still holds true today. The women hold all the power and they control everything. So, <laughs> as far as popularity is concerned. So if you end up being friends with them, the dudes, it might be a bad idea to beat your ass so much. And that's kind of how th- that was a yeah. You know, that's it. that was a, my my third or fourth grade revelation, and it, and it saved a lot of beats. So what what
0: changed at um, eighteen? What? Well, first of all, before you answer that question, how do you think those experiences uh, inform how you feel about yourself today and tools that you learned to to navigate uh, the world? I would think, obviously, one of them would be that you had to learn how to be a people person, right? Um,
2: Yeah. What? Yeah, I I don't know. I... I am talking to my, my wife about this recently. I don't, I'm not sure that I am a natural... I'm not, I know I'm not a natural extrovert. I'm probably an introvert. Not to my own devices. I'd read The Hobbit for the 50th time. And that's what I would do. Leave me alone. <laughs> I don't want to see anybody. But um, how it affected me was... And I think actually in a lot of ways... The cult did me a favor and that it convinced me early on that I was special and later on when I left it that feeling didn't necessarily go away um, even though the whole intellectual underpinnings of it did we were um, <laughs> give you an example <laughs> When I, in the, when I was in high school, one of my buddies, his dad, I said, look here. I know the date of the end time. I know the day Jesus is coming back. So he went to his uh, basement and he put up a big chalkboard and he said, okay. So you have the seven signs of Jesus and you multiply that by 14 and you put the uh, the book of Revelation that uh, has 11 chapters or whatever, and they divide that by two, and it's gonna be uh, uh, July 17th, uh, 1987. That's when Jesus is coming back. And we're like, really? And what they did, and what they said, it's like, we were like, oh, that's too bad because, you know, that's only in a couple of years. We better get our groove on. <laughs> but I don't want I'm all about Jesus but I want to get my good time on first. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they, well, I guess they inadvertently kind of made us um, get out, made me more of a people person than I necessarily would have yeah. been <laughs> otherwise. Yeah. So did you uh, experiment with drugs
0: or alcohol? Were you promiscuous or were you just completely straight-laced?
2: Um, that, that was the problem actually. I actually, again, I was a good kid. And what happened was, our, we had a, uh, a university that all the top students would go to. It was called Ambassador College. And I really, at the time, I, like I said, I was a fairly bright kid academically and I thought that would be where I would go. And one day, um, I saw one of the church ladies at a 7-Eleven. One of my church ladies, I was with some friends. Uh, we, we got some Cheetos or whatever, so we'd go back and play Risk <laughs> with my son of everybody's, right? What you did back in the day, right? <laughs> Big night of playing the Risk. <laughs> so I went to church later on, and there was a pause, and no one would look at me. No one would talk to me. And finally, my mother called me aside in tears, in tears, saying she heard what happened. What? 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 What happened? I heard the whole thing. What? She heard that I had been at a 7-Eleven and I swung open the door and a cloud of smoke in the car were three or four half-naked women. I walked into the 7-Eleven barefoot grabbed a whiskey some of them didn't sell whiskey. I whiskey and alcohol, put it all under my thing, walked away to the cashier without paying, told her to kiss my black ass, got in the, back in the van with the naked women, and then rolled off again, smoking bud the whole way. That was the story that um, somehow my, my night of risk had morphed into. <laughs> So, and so, what I was really upset about was like, look, if I'm gonna catch this, I wanna do this. <laughs> <laughs> well I, never, half naked, with them with the butt. I, I never did any of that. Boy, their plans just keep backfiring on them. <laughs> right. Well, and then, so they actually, at this point, I had a meeting with my pastor. He said, under the light of the recent revelations, uh, you were no longer eligible to attend Ambassador College. <laughs> and um, by this time Actually I maybe widened up a little bit And thought you know what That might be a good idea Because I heard that the uh, University of Michigan Had a bunch of naked women And I uh, wanted uh, <laughs> to see if I could Make some of that stuff happen in real life
0: <laughs> So the The uh, was it when you went to University of Michigan that you left the,
2: the church? How what, what part about leaving so, the church? So I was I was kind of coming out. What happened was my uh, my then pastor at the time, which, to his credit, what he did was he said, "Look here." I said, "I don't understand any of this stuff. This stuff does not making any sense to me." And he gave me a book, and it was called um, "Who Wrote the Bible," and I read it and I read it again, and. Uh, I really was out from that point on. I really didn't believe anything they were saying because of the book. The book basically, we were a fundamentalist organization where we believed the, the literal, every single word. And when you understand the book as a political document, as, a, uh, as something that was written off the the committee, it, it, sometime, it kind of took away, from me, the divinity of it. And then some of the obvious contradictions. And, uh, and plus, I don't think you should be slaves or have them. I'm against, I'm against,
1: I'm against slavery
2: in general. Put that put that out to you. What do you got a nitpick? What do you got a nitpick? But, but what happened was, um, I was still trying to clear my head. It, took, it wasn't like it was instant, completely instantaneously, and I was walking through um, the school I was going to, I was walking through schools and the university, And I saw a sign uh, to go to a program to study in China for a year. And uh, I applied, and and, uh, it was funny, at the time you had to to have foreign languages for anywhere that they would send you, but for the Asian countries, because they didn't teach Asian languages, you didn't have to have a foreign language. So they let me into this program to go to China. I got a fellowship to go. And my bags are packed, I was ready to go and Tiananmen Square happened. And they shut everything down, going to China, going back and forth, and I was like, damn. And the people came back to me and said, look here, um, there's a program in Japan, we'll do that instead, we'll put money around. And I was a stupid dumb kid. If you would put a gun to my head, and said, what's the difference between China and Japan? I'm not sure I could come up with anything. But, um, I ended up going to Japan for a year, and it was magical. And the, for the first day I was there, um, first, um, I got my first apartment. I was walking inside of it, and I got a phone call. A phone call for a number I could not have told anybody, because I, I, I literally didn't know what my number was. I picked up the phone, and it was like, Hello, uh, this is for, uh, the Tokyo branch of the Worldwide Church of God. <laughs> and uh, we heard y'all the town this is they want to invite you to serve them. I was like, oh, sorry and I hung up the phone <laughs> bad connection um, but li- again literally I could not have told you that I didn't know the number and they got me and, um, but I never I, that, that year in Japan um, and I remember trying to explain my beliefs Japanese people,
1: <laughs>
2: and that's what I do with you. When people look at you like you are, you, you do what for what reason? <laughs> Japanese people are like this. This fool has lost his day. Come, come here, come here, <laughs> come here, come here, come here, come here. Say that again. <laughs> Say that shit again. And um, <laughs> and having um, every just I mean, there was uh, one family. They were um, uh this family time to see for me and they had a uh, a, uh, a Korean um, uh, a restaurant and they would the grandmother would be in there and uh, she would like say they would say try to tell her again what you told me and she would cackle and
1: clap <laughs> she would
2: cackle and clap and, say, and they would give me and for, and for me doing that they would give me free food <laughs> So, I loved it. Um, they, I'm sure they thought I was, I was, it was crazy. Um, and, and it really was was a, was a magical time. I was with some incredible strivers. And the, uh, the ability to be in a, an environment like that, where there, there weren't all the base assumptions in the first place, and having to really explain myself, that pulled me further away from, from the cult. was great. Give me some just very brief,
0: Snapshot moments from Japan that that you love things that, that you remember about Japan that you still think about today Things that you saw or experienced or
2: oh missed. my god um, I'm gonna tell you my favorite story Okay, okay first day in Japan I told this on snap, but it's like it, it, it it really did change me my first day in Japan I went to Go and get some groceries and understand I didn't speak a word and, excuse me, where we were living was rural Japan, middle of nowhere. And I'm a little nowhere in Japan, there's 100,000 people, but it's um, a small town Japan. And so I was going to the grocery store, and I don't understand anything, don't recognize anything. And people in this area had never seen foreigners before. You know, they might have seen uh, a white person here and there, certainly never seen a black person. And I could walk down the street and cause car accidents. <laughs> so I had to go down side streets just to, you know, in my whole neighborhood when I first got there. And so I went to this grocery store, and I'm trying to pick out stuff that looks edible. I have no, I, like, no clue what this stuff is. And there's this group of older women, and they're following behind me.
1: Like, <laughs> <laughs>
2: What's wrong with you? And I'm going from out of aisle, and, um, and they're, they're laughing at me, laughing, laughing, and I put, I try to put these crackers in my, in my, in my cart, and they start screaming at me. Why am I, This woman, why am She starts screaming at me. And I can't take it, so I just leave. I'm done with you crazy people, and I give them little funny money, and I go back to my apartment. And I'm, un- I'm unloading the, my, uh, my groceries, and there's a knock on the door. And it's one of those older women from the grocery store who runs up in my house, starts digging through my groceries, digs in there, and pulls out my box of crackers. What more! Watch, why, watch, watch. She's pointing at it, and I see there's a dog on it. Oh. <laughs> um, dog food. <laughs> Go look out, crazy lady. <laughs> Thanks a lot. She was trying to save me from eating dogs. Next day, she comes by. Again, this time she's got a dictionary, And um, she's like, you got to learn the soul of Japan. What's that? The soul is in the T. In the T. I don't, you know, okay. And uh, she's like, you want to teach me the soul of Japan? Uh-uh. In, in Japan, you don't touch people. You don't touch people's Person, but this time she's like, she grabs me by my shirt and takes me down to her house, this beautiful old school Japanese home. And she's like, All right, I'll come on inside. Once you do, I'm going to teach you about Japan. And I didn't want to do it, but I figured, What did I go there for? And the minute I crossed that threshold, it was on. <laughs> Screaming, the hollering, the beatings. Um, no, she didn't <laughs> You no, know, that's, that's not true. She did beat me from time to time. But um, very, very lightly. Um, she was trying to teach me about tea. Tea. you—I uh, She poured the tea. I want to drink the tea. No! Nah! I just drink tea. You got to, first of all, you got to stir the tea. I got to smell the tea. I got to turn the tea. I can to lift it just right. I have to say this old, archaic language. And finally at the end of all of her nonsense, then maybe then would you possibly be allowed to possibly drink the tea? And all this time I'm sitting Japanese style with my legs are screaming on the leaf.
1: And
2: um, and so she and again, Domino, um, grandson, Domino! Glenn, what an idiot you are. Bakaero! And I can't do it again and again and again and again and again. And finally, one day. Um, like from her endless screamings and hollerings at me, we go to like a county fair and there's a bunch of old guys at the table. She says, sit down, (laughs) all right, I sit down and they start pouring tea. I start doing my, turn my thing just right, say the language, stir and the pour and the drink and everything like that. I get up and go about my business later on. The next day she comes with a scroll at the bottom of the scroll, it says, in, the, in Roman letters, the only everything's in Japanese, the only Roman letters are my name, Glenn Washington. The first time um, someone non-Japanese had been entered into the scroll of tea masters Wow! <laughs> yeah! Dude! What? Dude. What? Well, she was trying to give me the love, though. She was trying to give me a lot, it's, it's the 15th Apprentice level thing, but I was in the damn scroll, right? I, I was there, I can see it. And um, finally, you know, after a year there, um, I, I you know, I've been in Japan for a year, and I was about to go home back to Michigan. And my cab came, and she came to say goodbye. And in Japan, the way you show respect is how unboweled you, the, the one who was who was showing the most respect bows lower. And she bowed low to me. And I wasn't gonna have it, but so I bowed low to her. And she bowed low to me. And I bowed low to her. And finally she tried again. I went all the way to the ground. And, uh, and, uh, and I told her, I said, look, you have done this for me. I can't believe it. I'm actually speaking to you now in Japanese. I can't believe this. Um, but I'm not Japanese. I'm American, I'm from Michigan. And Michigan, I have to give you a great big old style American hug right now. And I went to hug her, and she said,
1: No! Nah! <laughs> <laughs> and she ran, top seat.
2: And, and, <laughs> but I chased her. I <laughs> so I'm faster than she is, I caught her. And she screamed, and she cried, and she laughed. And I told her how much I appreciated it, how much I loved her, and I told her that I would never, ever drink coffee, but i would always drink tea. And I (laughs) do. It's so
0: hard to clap while holding a mic. Not sure how much time we have left Jody how much time do we have left Eight okay we got a little time left. Um, so all of the stuff that, that you've shared with us um, take us take us to, to to when you get home you go to University of Michigan and then you get your law degree because I want to be able to get the arc of your your, your stuff in um, where uh, what's going on inside you now you're at the university of michigan or maybe you you graduated from there do you know what you want to do with your life what what are the um what is your image of yourself what do you think about yourself how do you feel about your future at, at this point
2: you know i am i was lost and i was broken um trying to understand that I had spent, had such a misspent youth at the feet of charlatans. I should probably say that um, the organization I grew up in um, imploded after the founder died. And I was just, it was a, it was a weird time. And, and two, I was kind of getting a better understanding of how lucky I had been coming out of that organization for a couple of different reasons. Um, I guess I still had I, I, I my, my, my weight system. So, I had a foil for my entire life, and who was my brother. I mentioned before that my brother was one year younger than me. And I actually convinced him to go to Japan. And he actually ended up living there for longer than I did. He ended up staying there for about five or six years. I probably have a natural slight mania. Constant. Not manic depressive, but maybe just a slight mania. My brother might have had a natural slight uh, melancholy that later on, manifests itself in what um, Well, it didn't manifest itself, he later on, it was... Uh, he developed a, a very late onset schizophrenia. And, um, and um, knowing that mental illness runs in our family, to see a person who was essentially, in a, a lot of ways, my twin, who at one point was a bond trader in Tokyo and the next year was babbling homeless on the street was devastating and um trying to and i think a lot of the the power of snap is that um because I did follow a crazy person. I'm not gonna say crazy, I know that's not a good word. I know that, I am going to say, um, a, um, a, um, crazy is a pejorative in a way, I don't wanna mean, a, he was a, a um, I think a we soci- understand it on yeah. this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> it's, where it's the intent of the, the way the person uses it. And yes, it's a, well, he, he was a sociopath in a lot of ways, the, the founder of our organization. But, um, but to have that paired with my, my brother's situation, um, where this was a guy, I was someone who had followed a cult leader. I was born into it, but I still had believed it. And um, so it's very, very hard. I can't condemn anybody for any of their beliefs. And I think and I also know that in my veins is um, the seeds of myriad mental illnesses. And my brother say, "Oh you, you know have you have a certain type of charisma on snap. My brother had way more charisma than I had. A lot of the ways he was smarter, he was a uh, a better storyteller. And um, five years ago walking here for an Easter parade I got a call from my from my sister screaming screaming and I knew that he was gone and it It was one of those things where um, I felt like uh, in a lot of ways when you grow up that close to someone they're like your repository of memories. You can call them and say, Hey, how did that go down again? Or what what was Joey's uh, wife's name or something like that? You you share, it's like, it's that close. And we were close enough to like, like I said, I went, we went to Japan together, we learned things together, we wrote together, we actually did projects, we started businesses together. And um, when he was, after he got sick, trying to, myself, I didn't understand, I don't think at the time, I didn't understand the extent of um, Of mental impairment, because I had known him for so long as a as someone who could take care of business, um, and so I think that since he did pass, I I feel like that to some degree. That melancholy that I never have really was personally touched by, it's um—it's burned itself into me to some extent, and I've, it's, it's there in a way that sometimes I'm surprised by.
0: Since then, the melancholy. Yes. What is the hardest, what are the hardest things about living with a relative?
2: who has who gets it the hardest thing is remembering remembering when they did remembering them as a whole person I got very very lucky actually right before my brother passed he um, he had this moment of lucidity before he had been accusing me of taking his winnings from Various investments and buying a bank in Palau, <laughs> and um, and then we're talking, and he's like, "You know what? You didn't buy that in Palau, did you?" It's like, "Nah, brother," and he's like, "And you never mimicked that machine, that flying machine, either. Nope, didn't do that either." And he's like, "And he's like, and then he's a." Like, Man, I am messed up in the head. <laughs>
0: <laughs> was he on his uh, medication when he had that moment
2: of lucidity? Mis- no, no. Did he ever take medication? Uh, off and on. I, I, the understanding, as you know from this show, obviously, the understanding of what schizophrenia or bipolar is is medieval, and I don't think there was. I don't. We say these words like they mean something. I don't know what his condition was. I don't. I don't know. I don't know what he had, he just, he was um, it, it was definitely on the schizophrenic spectrum but to say that there was pills or something that would fix him, I wouldn't pretend to say that was true. Well there's, I do know this, I don't, I
0: don't know if it's what uh, he battled, but there is um, a thing called schizoaffective disorder which is, uh, has traits of bipolar and traits of schizophrenia. That's what he wears. Okay. Yeah. Um, I have a friend. Who has that and when he's off his medication he even though he intellectually knows people are not out to get him he is convinced his body is convinced at every second that someone is going to try to kill him
2: I, I my brother I, I would i would say sometimes he was like that um it's, it's terrifying watching the other you go through something like that. I can't imagine. At one point, he called uh, screaming at night, and I didn't know where he was. All I knew was that the area code was Vegas. That's scary alone? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, we didn't know we where he was for several months, and so I went to Vegas. And started walking the streets looking for him. really, and he had been he been emailing me like pages and pages of the letter B or numbers and stuff, and uh, I was just walking around literally on the strip going, where might this be? And I, I I was at a Denny's, and I asked the lady where you know if you were homeless and you, you needed to make a if you want to uh, get on the computer, what would you do? She told me about the library in downtown Vegas. And I went there, and I asked the, the librarian if she minded if I checked the logs. And she said, yeah, she did mind. <laughs> I checked the logs. And right when I was there, talking to her, trying to convince her to let me look, my brother walked in. And um, so, and he acted like, you know, uh, how you doing?
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and so we got into the car. I said, let's go. And um, we went to Caesar's Palace. At the time, there was a, uh, uh, a buffet there. And he just ate, 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 ate. And I was trying to tell him that like, I wanted to take him back to California. He was kind of trying to hear me, kind of trying to hear me. And we're walking through Caesar's and he stops and he says they said no and it was probably the scariest thing I've ever heard it was in the middle of the of Caesar's palace and he was frozen and I said who said no they said go away And I was like, brother, maybe we need to go outside, and he ran, he ran outside the place, and then he's just waiting out there for me again like nothing had happened before, and I told him, I said, this is the scariest fucking shit I've ever seen in my life, and he said, that's what I have to deal with every day, <laughs> so... So it sounds like he
0: had somewhat of a conscious understanding almost like he could see part of what was going on. Ah. Or no?
2: I think that we were groomed to believe that we were fighting demons all the time. And it manifested in a very real way for him because of whatever this condition was. Um, Did he still believe in the teachings of the church? No, but he believed that we were certainly um, fighting spiritual battles. That whole thing, in fact, you know, that he was definitely in that realm. Um, You know, forget about Herbie, it was just like everything was in fact a spiritual battle He believed in magic. He believed um, in all kinds of different powers. And it was uh, (sighs) Uh, I wonder if he hadn't had those triggers if he'd still be here. What's that like to come? You know, um, everyone wants to go back. Everyone wants to wants a do over. I don't think it's anything to blame, but it's just one of those things where you. Ah, uh, I just wish. With people who have survivor's guilt. Oh yeah, talk about that. About survivor's guilt. Like I said, if you have your, there is nothing about me that's better than him. But I get to have a beautiful wife, these crazy rusty butt little kids, um, a wonderful uh, friendship circle fulfilling career, I get to have joy. And like, especially the last year there was life he was had in fear. And uh, not any better than him. Um probably worse. So you can't help but have that that um that thing and I think that but so what do you do with it? Um I certainly wanna Keep that joy. I want to have I want. I want to live my life. We were talking before we came out,
0: and say, tell me what you, what you were saying about the uh, enjoying the the podcast. I think I was I was commenting to him on um, how much how great it is, how much success he's had, and I watched a video where you went back home to uh, Ann Arbor and you performed for three thousand people.
2: Um, and, and tell me what you said I feel like <clears throat> for someone who's obviously a little bit let's just say keeping it together sometimes mm-hmm. um, my, my wife says I can't believe that you act sane most of the time <laughs> and I was like baby you know I have a, uh, a weekly therapy session I um, call stamp judgment And I think that storytelling in general, what's great about storytelling, what's great about this process for me has been that I get to narratively go back and pick at this kid, this kid screaming in the closet somewhere and then take him and put him somewhere in a position of power. And tell that story. So often, I think that we our stories are stopped in trauma. This happens a lot, a lot of times. You tell your story. This is like this bad thing happened to me. This bad thing happened to me. This bad thing happened to me. Well, um, what you I I found very powerful for myself is to say no, 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 no. Herbie didn't happen to me. I'm going to take where I was. I'm going to tell my story about him. I'm going to tell you the story. But when we and my brother went to the citadel of the Worldwide Church of God one night, in the middle of the night, we went past those red uh, bars that you're not supposed to go past. We went to this huge edifice that was built. It was the Mecca, Medina, the Jerusalem, the Rome. It was, it was the Vatican of our church, and we went there in the middle of the night unzip their pants, <laughs> and we piss on <laughs> Now, I, haven't, I I so enjoy telling you that right now, I can't tell you. <laughs> I really, really do. But the thing about it is, is it puts me, again, not a position of victim, but a position of power. Um, I'm not, I, I, I really don't want her to write my story for me. <laughs> And um, I think that oftentimes, I think that what happens with the big greatest gift of snap is to be able to try and go back and seize control of that, of my own narrative. It's been really, really powerful for everything.
0: Give me a, um, give me a fear. I'm afraid it's all going (laughs) to collapse. I'm afraid that it will all just feel numb. Mm-mm. That I won't feel either sadness. That I won't be able to cry and I won't be able to laugh. That's actually uh, the place that I like even less than the place where I can cry.
2: Mm. I don't know anything about that. No. I would fear that immensely Um, if I thought it was uh, something that I was susceptible to. But maybe I should take joy in that. Um, I don't at this point the, the highs and the lows are so intense for me at this point that I, I'm, not, I'm having a hard time imagining it and, I, and I don't want to even think about it too much Paul. That's, that's, a, that's a scary thought. Well, just, well
0: let's do a, a shitty movie where we switch bodies and
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: give me another thing Can I give you a love? Yeah I love my wife and I love it I love the um. The, uh, the acceptance that I feel sometimes the, the knowledge I, it's one of those things where I think that um, I, wasn't, I, I wasn't supposed to be accepted because there's a, as you might imagine there's a lot of crap back there and um, it doesn't seem to hold it against me <laughs> I think that's strange.
0: (laughs) I think those of us that have heard you share, I think that's one of the things that makes you more attractive is because it's made you search your soul to survive. You know, people that I've met that have survived difficult childhoods and come out the other side and, and learned to develop tools, to not repeat the cycle um,
2: are my favorite people because they're self-aware. But that's a fear. The fear is, okay, we think we've gone to a point of help and okay. a point of safety and stuff like that. What if the cycle is somehow? What if I, I'm trying my best not to pass this on to my kids? What if they're on this stage in 20 years saying, that motherfucker was crazy? <laughs> Lord have mercy. His psychosis have become mine, and I wish I could put it down. Well, I'll be happy because it means I'm still doing
0: the show. So, fuck <laughs> you.
1: It's
0: all about me. Um, I love exploring a new city and discovering a great place um, that has its own vibe, like this theater. You know, walking in to this theater and just going, this is perfect, this is just the perfect venue to, to do the, the podcast. And walking down Broadway in Oakland uh, today, picking a place to eat and just discovering new things. I love the excitement and I've been in a really good mood and I, l- I love being in a good mood and being excited to discover. Uh, new things cause when I'm in my depression, none of that sinks in. It's just everything is an effort. Everything is just a grey a great blanket. So I I love feeling that excitement of new. Well what
2: do I love? I love Paul. You can end right there. Yeah. <laughs> I love I love. You know what I love? I love, I was in the flow today. I was writing my ass off. It was awesome. I was there, I was writing my ass off, and then I got a text from, um, from my office saying that my dog had shat up the place. Um, the sick, come get him right away. Um, and um, so that I didn't love. Juxtaposition call. you see how, you get, you get the yin and the yang, the one and the other. I love the way uh, one of my dogs, Ivy, um,
0: quickly, when well, she'll be just walking in the backyard, just kind of strolling, and then real quickly, she runs five steps forward and shits real quickly, and then runs real quickly away from it. It's, it's almost like uh, it's something that she shouldn't be doing, and uh, she doesn't want to stick around to get busted for it. She so got nothing to do with that.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I love having a guest and I'm not just saying this because you're here I'm not trying to kiss your ass but I love having a guest that I'm interviewing where I know I don't have to worry uh, they're a great storyteller they bring the funny they bring the, the, the deep and I just kind of get to sit back and, and enjoy it
1: Thank you, Paul. That's that right there. Good watching, Thank
0: you very much. Boy, what a, what a great storyteller. I was uh, really, really happy we got to uh, got to record him and got to meet him. Um, so be sure to check out uh, Snap Judgment if you haven't already. I uh, want to give some love to our sponsor this week, Uh, uh We've talked about it uh, before, and I'll say it again. The importance of having a healthy gut on your not only your physical health but your mental health cannot be overstated. I lived for years with way too much bad um, uh, flora in my gut, uh, not fauna. I did. I was able to clear uh, the deer out when uh, I don't know why I go to the to the one that sounds like fawn. I guess because that's what I always think when you hear fauna. Uh, I always think of a fawn. Anyway, I lived for years with bad uh flora in my gut and I had no energy, um my depression was worse. Uh there were cer- certain foods I was intolerant to and uh it is so important to put that good uh those good probiotics in your gut and the people at Young Health do that and that's why they developed Probiome. It's a it's a liquid probiotic that promotes intestinal health and it contains a unique blend of bacteria that you're not going to find in 99% of other probiotics. Um, they have an industry leading fermentation process that ensures the largest number of good bacteria are delivered into your gut alive. Cause it doesn't matter how many get in there. it's how many get in there and stay there alive. Um, so a probe immune, super easy to use. Um you don't have to refrigerate it, which is huge, so you can travel with it. And right now, uh you guys can get the exclusive offer of a free bottle of Probeimune when you sign up for automated delivery. That's a $34.95 bottle of Probeimune free. So all you have to do is go to Probeimmune.com, Uh that's spelled P-R-O-B-I-M-U-N-E. And um when you sign up, uh use the promo code MENTAL at checkout. You'll get your first bottle of Proimmune free and you'll only pay six dollars and seventy-five cents for shipping and handling. Uh then each month Young Health will automatically send you your supply of Pro Immune for thirty-four ninety-five with free shipping and handling. So Go to probimmune.com, again that's P-R-O-B-I-M-U-N-E, and use the promo code MENTAL at checkout to get your free bottle today. Uh, Before we get to the surveys, I want to remind you there's a couple of different ways to support uh, the podcast if you feel so inclined. You can go to our website, which is mentalpod.com. You can make either a one-time uh, PayPal donation or my favorite, become a monthly donor for as little as five bucks a month. It, we greatly need your financial support to, to keep this running. There's so many things, um, that, that we need to do ways that we would like to expand. And right now we're just kind of, um, limited in, in what we can do, um, with the podcast. Um, so, uh, go do that. It's simple. It's easy to set up. Um, you can also support us financially by using our Amazon link if you're going to buy something at Amazon. Um, you, if you go to our support the show page, uh, you'll see, uh, and not only an Amazon link for just browsing Amazon in general, but you'll also see a little, um, a link that takes you to books and things that we recommend. Um, books we've mentioned on the show, books written by our guests, um, all kinds of stuff. So please go do that. And then you can support us non-financially by, um, going to iTunes, writing something nice about the podcast, giving us a good rating that boosts uh, our ranking, brings more people to the show. Um, in fact, I want to thank the iTunes staff. Um, and, uh, they've, they've, uh, been highlighting our podcast the last couple of weeks and brought in a lot of new listeners. And I'm super grateful, uh, for that. So to any of you new listeners, um, Uh, welcome aboard, strap yourselves in, and get ready for my apologizing. (laughs) Um, One thing I did want to mention is I've been getting a little triggered by the uh, Shaman Secrets surveys, so I've been backing off them a little bit. They're not gone forever. Uh, Some people are probably relieved because they can get pretty fucking dark, Um, but I just needed to take a little uh, break. Um, from them. So the, the, I think the surveys on uh, today's show that I'm going to be reading are uh, maybe a little less dark, um, certainly uh, sexually, uh, much less of, uh, of that kind of stuff. All right. Enough of the windup. How about the pitch? This was filled out by, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Benny, and Benny writes about his depression. Why are you all smiling and laughing? Fuck you all. <laughs> I laughed when I saw that one. I was like, oh my God, I know that feeling. It's the same way that I look, used to look at people that would leave uh, uh, part of their drink and walk away from it. Leave. I, I would be like, how do you... I, had never, I could never conceive of not finishing a glass of alcohol. Anyway, uh, about his bulimia. I better drink more water and throw up again, just to be sure about his anorexia. You only feel cold and weak because you haven't been fighting so hard, because you have been fighting so hard against your food addiction. Keep up the good work. A snapshot from his life. Waking up at 4.30 to get to university by 5 so I could study for 12 hours. Falling asleep in lectures because I was so tired, but not changing my habits because I was a good boy. Good boys work hard, despite the fact that they are lonely, tired, and miserable. If they fail to be perfect... Then they should cut themselves. Um, You know, my thought first of all, I want to give you a hug, Benny, but um, I'm not a therapist. I have no training. I told dick jokes on TV while I overcooked chicken. But if the thought just popped into my head, I've heard other people recommend this. What about going out? Because it sounds like there's a lot of perfectionism going on there. What what would happen if you just went out intentionally one day and said, I'm going to make as many mistakes as possible and see if I can live through it? See if it doesn't, that anxiety doesn't kill me. You know, you get on the bus, put in, you know, put in the incorrect amount of change or, um, I don't know. You can, you can think of something, but just a thought. Cause, uh, perfectionism is, Fucking! It is a it is a brutal master, and I hate myself for using that phrase. <laughs> this sounds so pompous. This is an email that I got. Um, actually, it's a um, an awfulsome moment that was emailed to me by uh, Shedzeradze. I think I'm probably mispronouncing that. That's that's my uh, that's my one mistake for the day. Um. Uh, she writes, when I was 12, my mom began a romantic relationship. Oh, and for those of you that are new to the podcast, awfulsome is a term we use for a moment that happened in the past that was awful um, at the time, particularly. But in hindsight, there's something that was kind of positive or bizarrely funny in a fucked up way. And so she writes, when I was 12, my mom began a romantic relationship with her former son-in-law. My eldest sister is nine years older than I, had married her high school sweetheart young, and had divorced within a couple of years. My mom's relationship with my sister's ex-husband began the year following this divorce. As the love affair was revealed, our family was shocked, but our reaction didn't prevent the two from continuing their romance. If anything, the family's disapproval fanned the flames of their passion. They grew closer in their outcast state. They eventually married. They've been married for over 20 years now. My mother is 20 years older than her husband. Our family eventually accepted the situation as best we could. From my own perspective, I had no choice, since I loved these people. I couldn't disown them just because of the unorthodox situation they had created. Over the years, I've integrated their relationship as part of my quote, normal, although I still wake up and think, did that really happen? I had to reframe the way I thought about my mom's husband and my mom in their new roles. The situation was more challenging for my sister, though, to have a new family tie to her ex-husband, now stepfather. And I imagine it was even more awkward for my nephew, the child she'd had with this ex-husband, who by the time he was a teenager, figured out he was his own uncle. I think everybody at some point in their life should get a chance to be their own aunt or uncle. Um, this is an email I got from Alex, and uh, I don't know if Alex is male or female, but they write, uh, my mom attends two support groups, and I jokingly mentioned that she is trading one addiction overeating, for another, uh, another quote, uh, another comma support groups. Uh, no, this was not hurtful uh, to her in any way. We have a great relationship, and I'm happy she's going. We both have a very Gil Martin-esque sense of humor. Uh, which probably means they flail at uh, making jokes and then uh, apologize afterwards. Uh, By the way, the best time to apologize uh, for a joke is in that awkward second between the punchline and uh, that person's reaction. Uh, She mentioned that one woman in her support group attends five different types of And I would bet she goes to at least one meeting every day. My mom respects the anonymity of the support group, so we didn't gossip any further. But I was wondering if you've ever heard of anything like this. Obviously, it's a healthier, quote, addiction than overeating, alcoholism, etc. But it still seems like it's a form of addiction or dependency. Uh, I wonder if there's a support group, Addicts Anonymous. And, uh, you know, I think that's a, a, a really great question. And my thought is... Um, while I wouldn't say that they're addicted, um, there are some people, uh, who I know, uh, who go through periods in their lives, uh, by going to meetings all day, every day. And for some of those people early in their recovery, that saved their ass. But I've also seen some people in recovery where they got some footing underneath themselves and they are kind of, uh, hiding out in, in meetings and not really, uh, living their life as fully as they could. Um, but I would never call it an addiction. Um, because a real addiction is something where the addict can never again have a healthy relationship with what they're addicted to. And support group people can, um, always, in my opinion, have a healthy relationship with a, a support group. Not, maybe not necessarily one group of people. Um, but, um, support groups in general. So I hope that answers your question. And if not, go fuck yourself. Oh, and to anybody of our new listeners from uh, from iTunes, um, go fuck yourselves too. Um, that's our kind of, uh, that's our old timey, old west way of welcoming you to the, uh, to the show. And if you don't know where uh, to go fuck yourself, go to the forum and they'll tell you not only where, but how. Uh, somebody actually emailed me and wants to start a thread in the forum uh, starting a glossary of terms and inside reference and uh, running jokes, which I think would be a great idea. Chameleon writes about her borderline personality disorder. It's like living with a teenage brain, but you're expected to act like an adult. That's a great one. Um comments to make the podcast better. You need an app that makes it easy to listen to the podcast. You can't rewind and fast forward episodes on the podcast app. Plus it would be nice to have the episodes and forum in one place that you can access from your phone. Um, the only place that I you know I haven't really I don't know as much about different uh, podcasting platforms uh, as a lot of people do. Uh but I mostly listens listen to podcasts through iTunes because it does list them all right there and you can um pause, fast forward and etc. Um so I'm not sure which podcast app it is that you're talking about. This is an awful awesome moment filled out by Ray. Uh, Ray is gender fluid and uh fifteen years old. Um Ray writes, I've been in therapy for a few months now, and I'm slowly recovering from self-harm. Before my recovery, I was quite compulsive about how I maintained and stored all my sharp objects. I slept with a pin cushion in my nightstand, tucked needles into hair ties on my wrist, and always kept safety pins and multiple pairs of scissors uh, on hand. I would get upset if I lost something or someone dulled the blades of my scissors. Over the past few months, I have removed, removed almost all of it from my reach, and this has greatly helped with my compulsions. Just as I completed this cleaning process, my birthday rolled around, my parents got me a brand new pair of designer haircutting scissors. (laughs) Thanks for sharing that, Ray. Oh, somebody also sent me an email uh, saying that um, while they appreciate um, the attention um. I give to uh, trans issues. Sometimes I um, will uh, refer to a non-binary person later in the survey as he or she. Um, obviously, that's not something conscious on my, my part, but um, uh, another thing that I should throw myself off a bridge about. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Shitty Son. I'm a fan of his right out of the gate. Uh, he writes, My mother died three weeks ago. Felt a little sad, but haven't shed a tear. Animal abuse or cute dog videos can make me bawl, but my mom has gotten nothing. I loved her, but I'm more happy she's out of pain and done with her frustration uh, with and fear of my father, who is an angry man. She also felt unseen and unheard, which made her run at the mouth constantly, a characteristic that drove people crazy. Everyone burst into tears the moment she died. They all think I'm being strong, but I'm not. I keep hoping tears will come, but not sure they will. I feel like a total prick. Mom deserves tears. You know, my thought is, tears uh, deserves has, has nothing to do with it, man. Whatever you're feeling is valid. I... I felt the same way when and I'm sorry I'm shared this several times on the podcast but I couldn't cry when my dad died and um it didn't really hit me until months later and a, a lot of people I know that's how it is so don't judge the grieving process you know it's it's no reflection of who you are morally how loving of a person you are it just happens to be the particular way that you process things no different than your digestive tract what i'm saying is your mom was shit moving on <laughs> um but dude thank you thank you for your uh your survey that um that's a really that's a really important question and a lot of people suffer in silence thinking oh i'm terrible i'm terrible This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Coming and disappointment. He, he writes, I went through a really tough breakup last year that was hard to move past. After months of trying to move on, I decided the best thing to do would be to just find someone new. So, a girl I'm interested in comes over to watch Netflix and casually hook up. Once things started getting heated between us, I suddenly jizzed in my pants, and a parentheses, likely due to no human intimacy for over a year. I could feel the embarrassment in my spine. I had to come up with a quick excuse to get away, so I said I had to pee really bad. I rushed into the bathroom, took off my underwear, and hid it in the back of a closet, trying to come up with an excuse for why I don't wear underwear. When I came back out, she said she had to go and suddenly left. She never came over again, and I'm not sure if she realized what happened. I've been so embarrassed of it happening again that I still haven't had sex in almost two years. And, uh... I just want to say I've heard this from many people, and I heard somebody say one time that I think it was on Loveline. They said, if you're somebody that comes really easily, um, masturbate before you um, go hang out with that person, and um, then you'll last longer. But dude, seriously, do not feel shame, and who knows why she left, you know? She might have been, she might have really wanted to have sex with you, but, uh, you know, had something in her, um, mind that was saying, now is not the right time. You know, you, you promised yourself you'd save yourself until marriage. I mean, who knows what she was thinking. But isn't it funny how we automatically go to, oh, it must be because I'm unlovable. Um, chum bucket 69. Oh, I gotta get your fan letter because I, like that name you're combining uh, buckets uh, fish parts and 69 oh DJ voice love 69 no idea it's really kind of disgusting thinking about bad DJ voice locked in a 69 oh not locked it's slippery oh come on
1: top of the hour Boston more than a feeling
0: chum bucket sixty nine is a gender and asexual a teenager and they write about their depression uh, major depression feigning ignorance about a particular subject just so someone will talk to me um i was also kind of struck by that one because for many of us, our depression makes us not want to talk to people um but I found that uh that's the thing about mental illness is every person's, is uh, an individual shitty snowflake. Vera writes uh, an awfulsome moment. The death of my father was the most devastating event in my life. Fortunately, his sister and my mother agreed immediately when I suggested which song to play on the cemetery. So when the coffin was let down into the earth, we played Monty Python's Always Look on the Bright Side on a boombox. To this day, I get sad in a happy way when I hear the song and so thankful that my family went along with it. I love that. I just love that. That is, man, that is that made me smile. Uh, James writes about his um, being abusive. I haven't broken the cycle, just moved it from the highway to the sidewalk. Snapshot from his life. When I was 15, my mother found my considerable stash of pornography and proceeded to tear my room apart, including all my posters from the wall, while screaming about burning in hell, etc. I tried to leave, and she started hitting me with a belt. As I jerked the belt from her grip, the buckle hit her in the neck, leaving a decent scratch. I expected my father to beat me severely as we had been in a fistfight or two by this point. Instead, he drove me out into the country in silence. He pointed to a cluster of trees and said, if you ever touch your mother again, I will cut you into little pieces and bury you over there. No one will ever find you and no one will ever care. I wish he would have beat the shit out of me. And I am so sorry that that is the dad and the mom that you got dealt. You know, and I'm not justifying you ever being abusive to anybody, but um it, it doesn't surprise me. Um but the good news is 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 we can get help for our anger issues. I used to be the angriest fucking person. I think I've shared this with you guys before that uh, the thing that led me to realize I probably needed to go to therapy was I was, I was at a, in my car, stuck at a traffic light that was green, but people were crossing in front of me, and I, you know, wasn't gonna plow through them, I wasn't that angry, but I'm screaming, get the fuck out of the way, what the fuck, Jesus!" it! And all of a sudden, like out of nowhere, This guy, like out of a time machine from the 50s with the fedora and the trench coat and the briefcase, all of a sudden, his face is like two inches from mine and he just looks at me with a mixture of pity and contempt and he says, son, get a hold of yourself. And then he was was like, he was gone. And I had never seen how angry I was until then. It's, um, It's amazing how... Addicted to um, that drug, that adrenaline. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by, is this something you can share with the rest of us, Amazing Larry? I don't even know what that is a reference from, but I love it. And uh, she writes, I've spent most of my life trying to reconcile for myself and explain to others how my mom could have been so controlling of and dependent on me throughout my childhood, and then flip a switch and be done with me forever as soon as I started to become my own person. She kicked me out when I was 16. I tried everything I could to build a relationship with her, even just as friends. But she finally told me when I was 20 that she wanted nothing to do with me, and I should let her get on with her life with the kids she actually loved. That's all straight up awful. The good part comes 20 years later. Thanks to this podcast, I learned the concept of emotional incest and started putting the pieces together. Our relationship was never one of mother and daughter. I wasn't disowned. That bitch dumped me. Suddenly, I broke into hysterical laughter. Convulsive, cackling, chortling, uncontrollable, muttly hiss laughter. I finally had peace and healing, courtesy of a line from Sex in the City. She just wasn't that into me. And that book was written by one of our guests, uh, Greg Barrett. Uh, great, great interview with him. Um, and that was the first love off and fear off that, that we ever did was uh, was with Greg. But the, thank you for sharing that, man. That's whenever you guys share that the podcast has helped you with with something, it's just it just makes my day. Uh, People scare me. Writes about his anxiety. My anxiety can best be summed up by my. Repeatedly hitting the closed door button in the elevator at work every morning because I just can't stand to deal with people, even for a 45 second elevator ride. Dude, I, I had to put this down and just contemplate how much I related to that. It, there is a sublime bliss to nobody making it into the elevator in time. And you getting to, to experience it, even less than 45 seconds, shit. Sometimes it's just three floors, but it's just like, it's just like, it's so peaceful. It is so peaceful. You know, to go from that moment where you think you're going to have to, you know, and this is mostly when I'm depressed. I, I, I feel like I'm, oh, I'm going to have to, you know, lift that 500 pound weight of smiling to, oh my God total silence it's just, it's like a baby deer nursing on a spring day it, it's just, it's like you're licking an ice cream cone and and just as you hit a piece of caramel you see a rainbow it's it's like it's like watching an aquarium just as your vicodin kicks in it's like that moment when a cop car goes from following you to passing you. Oh god. I'm so glad you shared that. I'm sh- It is the tiniest lottery. That 30 seconds of not having to make your soul lift weights is a tiny little lottery. It's like a miniature adult version of the last day of school. It is a blowjob on a recliner. Let's end with the dirty one. This is an awfulsome moment by a woman in a potato's body. And she writes, my housemate had been after me for a while to get our dog spayed. We just moved into a new house with actual carpet. And the housemate had been very grumpy about the fact that she'd found drips of blood on the bathroom floor and in the hall. I didn't tell her that I'd been on my period for two weeks now and was just really tired of having to wear underwear all the time. Thanks to my dog for taking the hit for the team. You guys are awesome. Uh, The Worst writes about their borderline personality disorder. Uh, They identify as uh, agender. And they write, uh, Wanting to be the most sick, because if you're not the sickest, then who are you? And then a snapshot from their life. I want to hurt myself so that people can see my suffering. As bad as I know it is, I just want my illness to get worse because nobody seems to notice or care about me unless I'm halfway dead. I just want people to care, to worry about me, and to maybe feel just as empty as I do because they know they can't help. I want to out-sick everybody, and I know how disgusting that is. It's just... So lonely, there's absolutely nobody to talk to about something like that. Because if I told them just exactly how desperate I am for them to acknowledge my hurt, they'd just see me as an abusive, manipulative monster and wouldn't worry about me at all. And I think that might kill me. My thought when I read this was, first, I want to give you a fucking hug. And the second one is, some people may react that way because there's a lot of people in the world that are uncomfortable with emotions any emotions I think for you it's just going to be a matter of finding the right person or people to open up to and I would start with a mental health professional um because you deserve to be heard your your hurt de- deserves to be witnessed and um felt by somebody else um you know in a way that it's not forced uh on them I, I hope I'm making sense But the first time I had my pain, trauma, whatever you want to call it, witnessed and had compassion given to it um, was a, a deeply profound moment in me getting better. This is an awfulsome moment, and I'm gonna I'm gonna save saying what her name is until I read her awfulsome uh, moment. Uh, she writes, "I was getting overwhelmed at work. On my break, I went upstairs to see what food was left over from the company picnic. The only thing I found was cake still in the fridge, inside the bakery box. I couldn't find a plate. No one else was in the break room, so I grabbed a fork and bent up the cake box to dig in." Just as I balanced a piece of cake on the fork, I heard the break room door open. I was worried someone would see me, had a surge of panic, and freaked out. I attempted to shove the cake in my mouth while closing the box and scooting away from the fridge. The attempt was not successful. I missed my mouth, smearing frosting on my cheek. I slammed the fridge door, but the box got caught, and the door wouldn't close. When the operations manager rounded the corner, I was standing next to the open fridge, wide-eyed, with cake on my face and a fork in my hand. Oh, my God. And uh, the name she gave herself? Cake Face Cunt. I'm a fan. I think you start touring. You put a band together. Um, and uh, maybe, maybe you get a, a boy band. To open for you uh pie faced cock just i'm thinking off the top of my head um and you know i started thinking about the way that i eat because i'm not a big fan of cake but i love fruit pie and i honestly don't know how often i i might eat uh sit down eating the second helping of pie But I don't know if I've ever sat eating the second helping of pie. I think because I have to pretend that I never intended to have that second piece. So I don't cut an entire second piece. I just pick at the pie while I'm standing up. And every time I'm taking a bite, I'm telling myself, "Oh, this is the last bite you need. You'll feel that this will be enough. And I don't even get a plate. You know, sometimes I will class it up by moving to the sink. Um, uh, you know, for a compulsive eater, managing to pause long enough to get to the sink, uh, that, that's pretty classy. That's like you might as well have a maitre d' showing you to your sink. That's how much restraint and class it takes. Maybe I should start h- hiring a maitre d' to show me to, to to my sink to eat over. At first, have him show me to the bathroom sink, uh, and I can say, do you have anything with the view of the toaster? And he can take me to the kitchen sink, and he'll say, how's this? And I'll say, this is perfect. And then he'll stand and watch me eat, and shake his head in disgust. Jamie writes about his alcoholism, Trapped. Whenever I try to stop drinking or drugs, I very quickly realize why I was self-medicating in the first place. Oh, that's so true. Snapshot from his life. About seven or eight years ago, I was going through a bad bout with suicidal ideation, and I mean bad. The best example I've ever been able to come up with was being at work one night and actually having the thought that if I could get to the point where I was only thinking about killing myself once or twice a day, I would be happy. Like somehow in my head, that's how normal people thought. you know I will never forget it as that thought for me illustrates how fucked up I actually was at that time. That's fantastic. thank you for sharing that that's that's awfulsome That's a good, awfulsome moment actually. um so I'm actually gonna uh cast you to hell for writing that in the struggle in a sentence survey when it really belonged in the awfulsome moments survey. Oh, I cast you deep, deep to the bowels of hell. You're going so deep into hell that that the view of Hitler just whizzes past you. And he's shaking his head. He's that disgusted at you for filling out the wrong survey. I might be overreacting. This is an awfulsome moment uh, filled out by Kale Bitch. And um, she writes, laying in bed until three in the morning with thoughts going 4,000 miles an hour, compulsively making notes in my phone of fractioned poems or ideas. So inspired, inspired, can't wait for the next day. Continue to add things in my shopping cart on eBay that's up to 15 items despite having little money. Decide to Google bipolar type 2 symptoms by a friend's recommendation. I find out... Find out hypomanic episodes include flying from one to the next, hyperactivity with decreased need for sleep, impulsive spending such as online shopping. Under the blankets with the information slash glow of my phone on my face, I laugh and feel both insulted and relieved, then saddened because I knew this state will be gone soon. And that's what garage sales are for. I mean... When we have a garage sale, shouldn't, instead of it saying garage sale, shouldn't it really say post-manic apology? Bridge Sitter writes about her depression. Waking up with ambition only to have it collapse right after coffee. Oh my God, yes. Oh my God. But if depression's really good and it's really honest hard working depression, it doesn't even care that you just had coffee. You can still fall asleep again. Uh about her anxiety, getting out of the car and running alongside the car because the car is too slow. Yep. Now I assume she's that that's she's using that as an analogy that she doesn't actually do that. But if she does, she'd be very fit. Um, about her codependency. Uh, checking on my girls every day to see if they are fine because then I know I am. Boy, I bet there's a lot of parents that share that. It's honestly one of the things that that makes me relieved that I never had kids. Is I, I would worry so fucking much about myself, not them. Fuck them. They're replaceable. Um, how many new listeners? tuned out three seconds after Glenn, Glenn's uh, interview was done. This is a happy moment filled out by Baby Steps Are Balls, and he writes, After a decade of my partner telling me that he can't just hold me and let me cry when I'm depressed because he, quote, shouldn't have to baby me, he has finally started comforting me. The first time he grabbed me and pulled me in so I could cry, I finally felt heard, loved, and thankful he could grow emotionally. It was like a breath after holding it for years. The look on his face as I cried told me how sorry he was. I still worry it will go back to how it used to be, but whenever I express this worry, he tells me, now I have all the patience and love in the world for you, and it will never run out. Wow, that's beautiful. That is beautiful. This is a great question. He asks, how can someone be supportive and helpful to someone whose depression manifests itself as anger and irritability? Any suggestions? I don't let it hurt my feelings when they get irritable, but I see their pain and want help. My thought is don't try to change them, but have firm boundaries about what kind of um, uh, how you, the limits of them expressing their irritability uh, towards you. You know, like if it involves them, you know, saying, you know, you're a fucking piece of shit. I don't know why I live with you. That there's no mental illness mental illness is justification for that. Um so, I think learning for them to communicate what they're feeling in a way that that doesn't attack you would probably be a good thing and maybe I don't know, maybe joint counseling. You could also try doing um support groups for loved ones of people who uh live with mental illness. I know uh NAMI.org, N-A-M-I.org uh, has a lot of support groups for loved ones. Um, and there's a great um nonprofit website called helpguide.org, H-E-L-P-G-U-I-D-E dot org. And they have um links to every kind of resource that you can imagine. So uh I'd look into that. I'd look into that. It's that's a really tough line to strike sometimes between how where does compassion end and where does being a doormat begin Um, I don't know but probably in front of the door somewhere that might have either been a great joke or a horrible joke so just to be on the safe side I'm going to cast myself not to the bowels of hell but actually the upper deck of hell and uh, I gotta say it's even hot up there I hate myself This next survey is filled out by false gods, and uh, she writes about her love addiction. Having feelings a thousand times more intoxicating for my ex, who treated me like a complete shit, treated me like complete shit, than for my current partner, who is loving, supportive, and the best kind of man. Why is healthy so less attractive? $64,000 question. Yeah. Yeah. It is my guess, uh, from what I've read and people I've talked to and what I've experienced is because somebody who is healthy is emotionally available and ready to see you. And deep down, you don't feel that you're lovable. So somebody who is unhealthy is emotionally unavailable. So you're not going to have to truly get close to that person, um, and you don't risk being seen or overwhelmed, you know, because a lot of times it's um, that fear of intimacy comes from having a bad experience with a parent who was um, either inconsistent in their love, um, not available at all, or um, was invasive and didn't respect boundaries. Um, and in a nutshell, a history of uh, bad experiences with intimacy. Um, This is an email or a a survey, a happy moment filled out by Trixie. And uh, she writes, my meds are working. And after four years, I finally feel so much better. It's a whole new world. I know now go on the app, Whisper, find people who say they are suicidal. There are quite a few and try to help them. That's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. And the thing is, people who've been through the hell of depression or mental illness or addiction, um, before, before they come out the other side of it and start to feel better, it's so important to know that you can be such an important person to other people who are at the stage that you used to be at. Because, I mean, think about it. Like, if you were stranded in the Amazon jungle, who would you want to lead you out of it? Would you want somebody who's lived there, walked through it every day, knows the trees, which ones are poisonous, which ones are medicinal? Or would you want someone who's looked at, you know, uh, a map of it a couple of times on Google Maps on their phone? So it, it can be a good thing having to, lived something in a painfully detailed way um, it can become really useful but you know if we never get help then we don't get to learn the tools to pass on to other people and we don't we don't get to experience them and use them this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by uh so and he writes um he was, he was molested at nine uh, by some older kids and they took pornographic photos. And his snapshot from his life, he writes, um, revealing uh, to a family aunt um, that I was molested. Her response, she slammed her hand on the table while yelling, so what? Just when you think you couldn't hear anything more fucked up than you had in five years of doing the show. Buddy, you deserve to be heard and felt and seen and your pain witnessed and validated and fuck her and there is lots of love and help out there. It's just our job is to try to or our mission is to try to find it, and there's a lot of places. Uh, This is an email that I got from uh, Maria, and she writes, Usually, all I need to say is, my son is almost 16, and I will undoubtedly get the sorrowful head nod that's supposed to communicate empathy, pity, and the you're just fucked for the next six years response. But it is so much more than that. It's the fact that my son refuses to take his meds for depression. He refuses to see his psychiatrist or therapist. It's the fact that I homeschool him, not uh, uh, his choice, not mine. And getting him to study is like having an appendix removed without anesthesia. It's that he's one of the most intelligent, funny, and sensitive human beings I've ever known. It's the fact that I've, I try so many things to help him. I try to encourage and praise him wherever I can. I try taking things and privileges away. I try listening without judgment. It's the fact that he won't speak to his stepfather slash my husband. Um, and my husband just wants to be his friend. I wake up every morning dreading the day, dreading him dreading talking to him about school, trying to get him to study, dreading looking at the garbage piles in his room. Uh, My son is an undiagnosed hoarder, dreading asking him to please brush his teeth and shower. I probably wouldn't surprise you to know that I've been diagnosed with depression and anxiety. I take medication daily and have seen a therapist consistently for the past 12 years. I spend a good deal of time worrying obsessively that there's something I'm not doing for my kid, and because of that, one day he's going to, quote, figure out that most of his issues stem from something I did wrong or neglected to do when he was little. I worry that I'm going to get that call from him when he's in his 30s, that I am a crazy bitch and he no longer wants to have contact with me. My brain knows that my fears are irrational, but I just can't seem to get them in check. I had a crazy, rough childhood. Both of my parents were emotionally abusive. I believe that my mom suffers from depression and dissociative identity disorder. When I confronted her a couple of years ago about things she had done when I was a kid, she quickly responded, I have no memory of that. We've never discussed it again. Do you know about any, Paul, do you know about any online parenting support groups? Um, I don't offhand, but I would check out helpguide.org. Uh, um, you could also try posting that question in the forum. Um, you can go to NAMI.org. Um, uh, you know, for loved ones of, of uh, people with uh, mental illnesses, and um, and I'm sure there are some highly recommended parenting books um, that you could read. But you know, the important thing is that you care, that you're trying, and it sounds like you're open. To um finding out if there's something that you could be doing better and changing it and, and that's huge that's huge, but I can't imagine how hard that's got to be that's got to be so overwhelming and the fear yeah that 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 there's something that you're missing um, I, yeah this is a uh, an email I got from Hartmut Teichman and he writes compliments of the day Haven. Not haven't. Haven, H-A-V-E-N, and it's capitalized. Haven gone through your business profile adverts. I would like to assist you as an investment broker and financial facilitator. Wow, that's nice. I have investors who are willing to fund and facilitate any business that is capable of generating 4% annual return on investment, A-R-O-I, in parentheses. My God, that sounds fantastic. Um. Equity loan financing can also be considered. I've contacted you on this, hoping I will discuss with you on the possibility of my clients placing these funds with you for management, either in your existing establishment or other ventures to be undertaken at your discretion, under terms to be agreed upon. Let me know your thought. Look forward to hearing from you. My God. You guys, this is really exciting. His... He's got people that are willing to give me money, and he hasn't even met me. And he doesn't know how many amazing ideas I have. Every morning after I get up, but before I meditate, I hit my head with a hammer. Um, Because if I don't do that, the good ideas don't come out. And here are some of the ideas for businesses that I have written down over the last six years. These are just the good ones. Um, Making hats that have turn signals. Um, making church organs, uh, but instead of, uh, the big pipes, uh, it's bongs because then you can get teenagers interested in church. Um, this one, I don't know why, but I want to get a poodle elected, you know, not to a high office, not something ridiculous, just like a mayor or something. Um, I want to sell earplugs door to door and do it by jet pack. Now, hear me out. Here's what's going to happen. The person is going to hear the jetpack hovering over their house. They're going to come out and go, what the fuck is going on? And it's going to be so loud because of the jetpack. What are they going to need? Earplugs. Who's got them? I do. Right here on the little pouch on my jetpack. Um... And then here's the real winner. Here's the real winner idea I think Hartmut and his associates would really like. is I want to merge angry kids with paintball guns and homeowners who are strapped for cash and create a really, really cheap, really slow way of getting your house painted. I hope to hear back from him. I may I may be a little compulsive, but I'm already spending the money that I expect to get, the revenue stream. This is uh, from the Babysitter Survey, and this was filled out by Danny. Are you okay? And, um, let's see. Danny is... Uh, she's straight. She's in her 20s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um... She writes, When I was nine, I was babysat by my 15-year-old stepsister while our parents were still working after school. My stepsister had moved in with us temporarily because her mom couldn't, quote, handle her anymore. My stepsister came from a very rough area in a different state, and I had never been exposed to anything, quote, rough until she moved in. She openly discussed the types of sex and drugs she had already been exposed to. Her stay didn't last long because my stepdad at the time couldn't handle her either and sent her back to live with her mom after staying with us for about six months. I remember we found some porn VHS tapes in our parents' room and we started watching them. I had never seen any porn, but that curious part of me was still interested. I knew we were wrong, but nobody was home and there was a part of me that was intimidated and afraid to tell my stepsister we needed to stop because it was wrong. I didn't want to be uncool to her because I wasn't sure what that would result in I was intimidated by her I'd never been exposed to anything even close to porn I think I'd only ever seen a scientific diagram of sexual organs up until that point as we were watching the videos my stepsister suggested we get get onto the bed in the same room and hump each other with our vaginas uh, to one another's vaginas she placed a black blanket over the top of us and we did we started humping with our vaginas, touching skin to skin. I remember knowing that it was wrong, and I had never done anything like that before, but there was a part of me that was scared to say no because my se- step-sister had a much rougher life than me, and I wasn't sure what she was capable of. No was never an option. It also felt good to me, and I didn't know how to stop it, so I just kept letting it happen. I'm pretty sure I got close to orgasm, But that shame was too much for me to truly, quote, finish. I never told anyone until about two months ago at the age of 30. I told my therapist and my boyfriend. Up until about a year ago, I had way too much shame and guilt to admit the incident to anyone uh, because I felt guilty. I didn't even consider this incident to be abuse until I started therapy and listening to the podcast. Throughout my adult life, shame has surrounded my sexuality, and I believe it stems from this incident. I have also always felt the pressure to consent to sex with previous sexual partners because I was intimidated or scared to say no. I would have sex out of obligation, which I think comes from this incident. I also have found myself fantasizing about scissoring other women, but have never acted on it. I also really enjoy lesbian porn, even though I consider myself straight." Thankfully, through counseling, I'm becoming much more aware that this incident was sexual abuse and have been able to work through the shame of sex and have learned to have a say in when I want to have sex rather than giving in to doing it uh, all the time. Uh, even though I've worked through some of these issues in counseling and have told a few people close to me, I still feel regret and shame. I am disgusted and disappointed in myself because I didn't say no to my stepsister's persuasion. As an adult now, I can have some compassion towards my nine-year-old self, but I still feel a little dirty when talking about the incident. I'm even more disgusted that I fantasize about reenacting this incident in my adult life because it feels like a sick thought to have. Um it is actually a really common thought to have um that's just something the brain does, and then long time listeners of the podcast know that this is this is um one of the most common things that we read on the podcast but um I think it's so important to to talk about it because people. You know, for me, 48 years, I, or, well, I guess since I was 11 at the time, 37 years, um, I lived with shame of things that, you know, happened to me that involved adults or kids who were much older. And um, you can get to a place where you don't feel shame about it anymore. And it has affected my sexual fantasies. And that's okay, because. You know, I, I don't hurt anybody in them, and that's, that's all that matters. And um, do you feel any damage was done? I feel this incident is when my innocence was broken. It opened the door to shame, guilt, fear, and confusion surrounding sexuality. Um, has this incident influenced how you view your children being babysat? I don't typically use a babysitter for my kids, and I don't let them spend the night at their friend's house because I'm always worried something similar could happen to them. Um, and then she writes, I went through a phase of being very promiscuous and I believe I was date raped more than once waking up, not knowing what happened. There was one time a man encouraged me to snort a line of Coke so that we could have wild sex. Once more, I was afraid to say no. I was also coerced into having sex more than once without my consent. I honestly can't count the number of times that I didn't want to have sex and allowed someone to take advantage of me. Um, Another thing that I wanted to read, which is it's super, super common for people who have had their um, boundaries violated um, um, sexually to go through periods of prom- promiscuity and periods of completely withdrawing from sex and often going back and forth between the two. And I'm one of those people. And I've struggled with it my whole life. And I didn't know it was a real thing until I got into support groups and therapy. And... Um, I guess that's why I am always singing the praises of therapy and support groups is because it, it saved, not only did it save my life, it's given me a life where I can feel comfortable in my skin, for the most part, um, and uh, sane. And it's I look back now and I think, man, I, I was just living in a fucking prison in my mind. And you don't have to. This is a happy moment filled out by... Um, Oh, this is our friend. Uh, is this something you can share with the rest of us, Amazing Larry? i got to find out what that's a reference to. And um, she writes, At the end of a particularly trying work week, my friend uh, ran up and told me to cancel whatever my plans were because Rufus Wainwright was going to do a free show at a really big bookstore accompanied by his mother, the legendary and now sadly departed Kate McGarrigal. Rufus told the story of being a little kid when his parents would throw amazing parties with brilliant and glamorous musicians and artists, and how his mom would play piano and let him sing his favorite song for all the guests. She started playing, and then he belted out the most beautiful rendition of Somewhere Over the Rainbow that I've ever heard. I felt hot tears start to roll down my cheeks and looked around self consciously to see that every single man, woman, and child crammed into this bookstore was in the same boat. I've never felt such comfort, acceptance, and connection as I did standing shoulder to shoulder in a crowd of 200 strangers crying together. It was a beautiful expression of pure emotion made sublime by the fact that we could all share it without having to explain what was going on inside. It's beautiful. Thank you. Um, It's a struggle in a sentence filled out by living in a pumpkin spice hell and uh she writes about her seasonal affective disorder every summer getting to be who i really am and every winter losing her in the dark oh my god this is another one that i just had to i just had to s- just sit and think about for a minute cuz it's so hard to put into words the feeling that hits like when when you hit that that part of fall you know, usually like mid-November where there's no more leaves and it's dark by 5, 5.30. And I don't know, it's, It it it's like, for me, it, it's like it scoops something out of my chest, you know. I, it's like my mu- interest in hearing music is gone. And then the thing that makes it really confusing is when you smell um, a pile of leaves, that like decaying smell, which is, for me, connected to happy moments of playing in the woods as a kid and hiding in a pile of leaves. And But now, smelling it, I'm in a state of depression, and the thought that comes up is, I used to be happy. Oh my God, I will never feel happy again. Oh my God! There, there is something about fall, about fall depression. It'd be interesting to see how uh, it goes this this fall with a new med adjustment. But thank you for uh, for that. And I'm sure I won't even bother to tell you about the, you know, the lights. That if you know the the term seasonal affective disorder, then you know that there are lights that you can you can sit in front of that uh, supposedly help with that. Um, actually they do. I've done it before. This is from the vacation argument survey. Rarely. This is like a rare wine, this survey. Um, uh, but, uh, I love some of the stuff people fill out on this one. This was filled out by Victor and he writes, my boyfriend and I went on a road trip to visit my family. While we were out with friends, he told me he had kissed one of them. So in retaliation, I told him I had been cheating on him for years. In a rage, he flipped a table and was arrested. Because I didn't want him to be alone, I asked to be arrested as well. Oh, fantastic. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Anon, and she writes, uh, I have told my boyfriend about my depression and experience of sexual abuse as a child multiple times he told me everyone has depression he didn't know that mine was so quote nuanced I don't know what he meant by that um, He also said and by the way no everybody doesn't have depression everybody's been sad but you know, as I like to say thinking you understand clinical depression because you've experienced situational sadness it's like thinking you understand Italy because you've been to the Olive Garden. He told me everyone has depression, and uh, he also said that because there was no penetration in the abuse that I remember, he thought it, quote, could have been worse. It took me 10 years to tell anyone what happened, and although a few people know now, it hurts so much to hear my biggest secret and most hurtful, informative memories, and how I feel about them devalued. It's my biggest fear that when I tell someone, either they won't believe me or they won't care, he doesn't seem to care. Um... To which I say, get the fuck out of that relationship. You deserve better. You deserve compassion. You deserve somebody that cares for you and loves you and sees you. And I'm not saying he's a bad guy, but he is emotionally ignorant. And you need, after being through that, you need somebody that is emotionally intelligent. Um. This is an awfulsome moment. I love this one. Filled out once, once upon a time in Mexico. And he writes, uh, My mom has always had a terrible diet and spent her last few years slowly dying of ignored diabetes. I mean, doesn't this sound awful or uh, fantastic right out of the gate? Uh, one amputated toe at a time. She was dirt poor and living with my sister in Mexico when she finally passed away. They don't typically embalm bodies down there, so I hopped the earliest flight and arrived less than 24 hours after I got the phone call. My sister was still taking the death very hard. My sister and I go into the room where my my mother had been staying and sat on the bed, the same bed that my mother had died on the day before, holding hands in silence. The room was really bare and depressing. The only items in the room were a wheelchair, a walker, and some pictures and candles of Jesus. After a couple minutes in silence, in my most serious tone, I said, I wasn't looking forward to this conversation, but we need to have it at some point. We need to divvy up the assets. I get the wheelchair, you get the walker. She burst out laughing and eventually crying from laughing so hard. I don't think I've seen her laugh that much since we were kids. Fantastic. Thank you for that. Um, too emotional. Uh, writes about her depression. Uh, it's like walking through a bowl of Jello that my parents keep putting in the freezer. That is a good one. Snapshot from her life. A coworker had mentioned to me after hearing me discuss my relationship with my parents that it sounded like emotional neglect. I argued that my parents were amazing and did everything to provide me with a better life. My coworker suggests I read a book called The Gifted Child. A week after finishing the book at a family dinner uh, with my aunt, uncle, and parents, my mom started talking about how every night after after visiting, I would end up in tears, then said, you're too emotional. It was timed so perfectly. Maybe that's a good book for uh, the people to read about uh, a parenting book. Um, Even though I know that book is meant probably for a child who's now an adult and has issues, but maybe uh, I don't know. I've never read it. Read it, but um, I've never read it either. Glad Girl um, writes about her uh, borderline personality disorder. On the bad days, it feels like wearing ballet slippers on an ice skating rink. The smallest slight against me, whether real or just perceived, can send me crashing down. Sometimes there's someone there to catch me before I fall, but other times I reach out blindly and pull someone else down with me. That was like a little poem. Thank you for that. That's really, um... Uh, I don't know what the word is. It really helped me understand, um... I guess I've run out of words for the night. Uh, We've got two things left. Uh, This is an awful some moment filled out by a guy who calls himself people scare me. And uh, he writes, when I came out to my mom three years ago, her reaction wasn't great. She said I could never bring home anyone I was dating or even married to. She repeated the same mantra I'd heard my entire life growing up in the Pentecostal church. You're going to hell and she cried over the fact that she, and her words, would never have grandchildren. Last October, my mom took her life, an occurrence that's only increased my anxiety and depression, and added in some PTSD to the rest of my mental health issues. But two weeks before she died, she acknowledged I was gay for the first time she used the word gay in a sentence and it didn't have that masked hatred or disgust as it rolled off her tongue a subtext i have unfortunately gotten used to living in the bible belt but this time it was casual that meant the world to me and later that week and later that week we bonded over a cute male contestant on the voice both of these things are very trivial but to me they're the largest acts of acceptance I received from my mom before I lost her the following Friday, and though I did lose her, and that is a pain I will never get over, I know that in the end she accepted me, even if it was in her own small way. You know, that's. I would I would qualify that as a as a happy moment actually, but I guess you could probably feel like a dick for putting, you know, a happy moment in something that, where your mom took her life. But I guess that's, that just warmed my heart so much. Um Shut up and move on, Paul. Wow. This is uh, an email. I got from a woman who wants to call herself, um, and, you know, I apologize if, uh, this last thing I read comes across as a little self serving, um, but I want to read it anyway because it made me feel good, um, even though there's parts of it that are, are, um, dark, not about me, but about, Uh, Just fucking read it. I am Ed Norton circling around the table. Just sit down. Just fucking sit. Put the bandana down and sit. She calls herself, uh, I just wish Paul had had this podcast 40 years ago when my children were born. And I wanted to read this because, you know, parents get blamed a ton in this podcast. And maybe I don't say it often enough, but I don't expect any parent to not make mistakes, even really fucked up ones. And I just want any parent who's listening to know the most important thing is how you feel about learning. From your mistakes, how willing are you to accept responsibility and learn how to not repeat it in the future? That, to me, is what matters. With that in mind, she writes, "Dear Paul, I've written you before. After my daughter's first suicide attempt, I I started." Listening to the podcast two years ago because I was hungry for information about drug use, addiction, depression, anxiety, ADHD, bipolar disorder, personality disorder, the many meds she takes, all the struggles she was going through. In the process of listening to your guests and you talking about mothers, I shockingly realized that I myself am a raving codependent and have OCD. I did not know how to listen to my daughter or respect her boundaries. Wow. Humbling. Your podcasts have taught me how to deal with my issues. Going to support groups, therap- therapy, plus admitting my issues to my daughter and apologizing for my bullshit, as well as how to listen to her and create a safe space for her to talk to me. How to respect her boundaries, even though I know they might lead to suicide, um, and in parentheses, and did lead to an additional suicide attempt last year, um, and continue her addiction, unspeakably painful and against all my instinct. She used to cut me out of her life for periods of time. Now I understand why in listening to your podcasts. But now we have a much closer relationship because of what I have learned um about how to respect her and never judge her, how to offer her comfort instead of being a know it all, and especially how to listen and accept um accept, not accept, uh to say um Oh no! She meant she misspelled it. She meant to say except e x c e p t. She spelled it a c c. Uh, and especially how to listen uh, and accept to say I'm here for you and I love you. How can I help? Or sometimes just a hug. Uh, sorry, I fucking stumbled through that thing. But that that is just so beautiful to me. I, I, I guess these last two that I the things that move me the most are the things that have. A light buried in a f- fucking big dark ball. Because in my experience, that's been life so far. Is just trying to find the light in, in the ocean of, uh, of darkness. And the previous survey, the guy whose mom finally accepted him in her small way, and her finally looking at herself and being willing to feel that shame as part of love for her child is so fucking beautiful to me. And I think the other reason I wanted to read it is because I wanted that from my mom. I wanted my mom to be, to do that. And I could never get her to do that. At least in a way that was consistent and remotely felt safe to me. And so I just want any parent out there to, to know um, your kid probably doesn't expect you to be perfect. They just want you to be real When you see, you fucked up. And, I don't know, I'm babbling now. I hope you heard something that moved you, entertained you, made you laugh, made you cry, made you want to cast me to the bowels of hell, which I refuse to go to. Again, I will go to the upper deck of hell. And by the way, that is the best place. If you're going to get hell hot dogs, don't try going down to the mezzanine. The line is crazy. I lost my fucking train of thought. <laughs> I hope if you heard this episode, there was something that, in it, if you're struggling, that made it a little easier for you to reach out to someone be it a therapist, a support group, a trusted friend, or just maybe even just write your thoughts down. Sometimes that's a good place to start. Because no matter what you're going through, what you're feeling, how you're feeling about yourself, there's somebody else that knows that, that has felt that, and that is in that right now. So you're not alone. And um, thanks for listening. Everybody I know is
1: bizarrely beautiful fucked, fucked, fucked up in some weird <laughs> way bizarrely beautifully everybody fucked up in some weird way